0: First of all, I just want to say thank you uh, for having me here today uh, to preach to you from the scriptures this morning. Um, And I'm not going to open with some interesting illustration. I usually never do that because I think the text needs to be our focus. So let's start there. So go to Psalm 121, and I just want to read it uh, together. So would you follow along with me, starting there in verse 1. The psalmist writes, and he says, I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. Let's pray. Father, thank you uh, for your goodness. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for passages such as this that are an encouragement to our hearts. Father, help us today uh, to see you in all of your goodness. Would you help us also to see Jesus in all of his glory? Father, also, Through the Spirit, would you convict us of sin and righteousness and judgment? Would you lead us to the cross? Would you lead us to be able to be coming to the cross and leave our sin there and rest in Christ? That's our prayer today. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so this psalm is considered a song of ascents. Your Bible probably has a title like this or um, something to that um, uh, similarity prior to verse 1. This is the second of 15 songs of ascents, starting in Psalm chapter 120 all the way through Psalm 134. They've also been called songs of steps or pilgrim songs. Uh, The reason they're called this is because most theologians and historical scholars believe that these were songs sung by worshipers making their pilgrimage up to Jerusalem to attend the three feasts of Israel that required every observant Jew to actually be in the city for. So as they make their way to the city, they're literally beginning to ascend into Jerusalem. Uh, These songs are preparing them for the festivals. It's preparing them for worship. Uh, these songs are preparing, again, for this, this heart of worship. These 15 songs of ascent are very short. If you look through those, those chapters there in the Psalms, you'll find them very, very short. Psalm 132 being the longest and twice as long as all of the others, at only 18 verses. They're all characterized by this form of repetition that at times to our Western ears can sound a little weird, How often do you hear a preacher repeat himself and you're like, okay, dude, move on, right? Okay, that's a little bit of how these psalms can read. But it's made this way as a form of worship. It's made this way as a form of beauty. Easton's Bible Dictionary says this. It gives a pretty cool description of these psalms. It says, more than half of the songs of ascents are cheerful, but all of them are hopeful. This is my hope for you this morning. Many of you may be coming into this building cheerful, some of you may be struggling. Help isn't coming from there, but in Yahweh, the maker of heaven and earth. Before we look further to where our help comes from, I want to point out something for you. Like I've already said, most scholars say this is, uh, the, this is being sung as they're on their pilgrimage up into Jerusalem. These roads going to and from Jerusalem are treacherous, They were dangerous, robbers, murderers, they all abounded, right? So the journey to Jerusalem was a a scary one for for anyone to make. Even in the days of Jesus, um, these roads are the backdrop for the famous Good Samaritan parable. The true meaning behind verse 1 and verse 2, I think, is clear. The pilgrim was fearful of the physical dangers that were possible to come his way, and he realizes he needs help is he going to get help from the mountains or the hills? Is the topography of the land going to keep him safe from harm? No, no, he needs to trust the very one who created those small mountains. This is the meaning of the text. I mean, it's easy for us to try to make verses mean something that they don't, right? But we have to remember scripture only has one meaning, and it has many applications. That's why we can look at this and we can say, I know what that pilgrim feels like. I may not have done a pilgrimage up into Jerusalem, but I know what it means to be afraid of my circumstances and to be worried about my surroundings, and I know what it's like to begin to look for help in all of the wrong places. My situation's different, but the same truth God's giving to this pilgrim I can apply to my life and the circumstances and surroundings I find myself in when I'm tempted to look in all the wrong places for help. This psalm, I think, is a great encouragement to us, no matter where we are, no matter our circumstances, no matter our surroundings, to keep our eyes off of the physical and tangible things that we naturally run to to help us in our time of need. To lift our eyes higher than the hills and look to the creator of heaven and earth. So, how can I help, how can I find help in this life? Where do I place my confidence? I've already kind of given you the answer, um, the first answer, anyway, but let's look at it a little bit more in verse two. And this is the first answer I want to give you: is find your help in the creator of heaven and earth. Verse 2, I think, is clear that our help doesn't come from the tangible things of this earth. It doesn't come from even the majestic creation that we experience. Our help comes from the Creator. Think about this, this statement just for a second. If our help comes from the Lord, the Creator of heaven and earth, our help comes from the source that created everything. Our help is sourced in the very power of God. And no other power can hinder it. The Old Testament writers would often refer back to God's power in creation to emphasize this very truth. That God's power was endless and not bound by anything else. I want you to just look at a couple of these instances. Go ahead and take your Bibles and go over to 2 Kings chapter 19 and verse 15. Again, 2 Kings chapter 19 and verse 15. The other reference I'm going to go to here in a second is Jeremiah 32, 16. Right, again, 2 Kings chapter 19 and verse 15. And Hezekiah prayed before the Lord and said, O Lord, the God of Israel, enthroned above the cherubim, you are the God, you alone, of all the kingdoms of the earth. Notice what he says, you have made heaven and earth. Then in Jeremiah chapter 32 and verse 16 and 17 It says, I prayed to the Lord saying, ah, Lord God, it is you who have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and by your outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you. Please hear this. God is powerful enough to meet you in your need. Do we believe that? I know we say that, but do we truly believe it? I think verse 3 is clear that God's help comes to you in the dark and dangerous paths of your life. And He keeps your feet under you. I remember as a kid uh, loving to walk along and and try to balance myself on a curb uh, of a street. Almost like the balance beam in gymnastics, you know. You try to balance along that, and inevitably, I'd take my eyes off of the curb, and my foot would slip down, and I'd trip. Or at bare minimum stumble enough to look weird and I quickly look around and try to make sure no one saw what I just did. Uh, my point is that we've all kind of done that, whether or not we're walking on a curb or, or just normally walking, and for some reason we stumble. If we're relying on our ability, we eventually will stumble and we will fall. What the psalmist, I think, is declaring to us is that regardless of our circumstances in this life— Regardless of all of that, our confidence is in God Himself, and our ability is sourced in God. When our confidence is found in God Himself, we will not be moved. It says, He will not let your foot be moved. God's like a parent holding the hand of a toddler, and even though that little one might stumble, that strong hand of the parent quickly moves to action to prevent the scuffed up knees and the tears that would follow from you know, falling down, scraping hands, all of those types of things. I would say let us put childlike faith in the creator of heaven and earth and walk hand in hand with our God who will keep us from stumbling. But you might say, I get it, but it feels like at times God is distant. It feels like God doesn't care at all. I mean, where is he in my life? I know we like to come to church and act like we don't think like that at times, but I know we all struggle with those thoughts. Sometimes we feel like the prophets of Baal at Mount Carmel. We feel abandoned. We feel alone. And what did Elijah say to those prophets of the false god Baal? Actually, go over to 1 Kings chapter 18 and verse 27. What does he say to these, these false prophets about who God is. We're choosing to believe a lie about what God has promised. We're choosing to believe the lie that God has forgotten us. We're choosing to believe the lie that God has forsaken us. We're choosing to believe in a puny God that is asleep at the wheel. The true and living God, the one who keeps you, neither slumbers nor sleeps. Again, look at verse 3. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. If you look over to Psalm chapter 94 and verse 14, the psalmist writes and he says, For the Lord will not forsake his people. He will not abandon his heritage. Famous passage in Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 5, For God has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. If you're a child of God this morning, if you're a follower of Jesus, if you've trusted in Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, I want you to hear this. God will never say, I don't want you anymore. God will never forsake you. He will never forget you. His love for you is never-ending. Sometimes in the Old Testament, God gave illustrations to the nations of Israel through the lives of the prophets. The prophets did things there um, Some of those things were were vivid pictures of the truth that God was trying to teach his people. One of these is the prophet Hosea shows us one of the most powerful pictures of God never forsaking his people. God tells Hosea to take Gomer to be his wife. Gomer was a prostitute. In Hosea chapter 1 and verse 2, it says, when the Lord first began speaking to Israel through Hosea, he said to him, go and marry a prostitute so that some of her children will be conceived in prostitution, This will illustrate how Israel has acted like a prostitute by turning against the Lord and worshiping other gods. So Hosea obeys God, and he marries her. They have two sons and a daughter, but she runs away from Hosea and the kids to be with other men, and she actually ends up as a slave. Even though she's been unfaithful to Hosea, Hosea still loves her, he still pursues her. God tells Hosea to go and buy her back from the slave market. He doesn't buy Gomer to be uh, to be just his slave but to truly be his wife. God gave Israel and, and those of us who are followers of Jesus this illustration in the marriage of Hosea and Gomer to show us something about himself and how he loves those whom he's redeemed. Just look at how God relates this relationship to his relationship to Israel. And by the blood of the new covenant through Christ, we as the church are grafted into this beautiful relationship. Look at Hosea chapter 2 and verse 14. It says, God says, But then I will win her back once again. I will lead her into the desert and speak tenderly to her there. I will return her vineyards to her and transform the valley of trouble into a gateway of hope. She will give herself to me there as she did long ago when she was young, when I freed her from her captivity in Egypt. When that day comes, says the Lord, you will call me my husband instead of my master. O Israel, I will wipe the many names of Baal from your lips, and you will never mention them again. On that day, I will make a covenant with all the wild animals and the birds of the sky and the animals that scurry along the ground so they will not harm you. I will remove all weapons of war from the land, all swords and bows so you can live unafraid in peace and safety. I will make you my wife forever. Did you hear that? Showing you righteousness and justice, unfailing love and compassion. I will be faithful to you and make you mine and you will finally know me as the Lord. So just like Hosea, God doesn't forsake his bride. He doesn't give up on his bride. Church, the New Testament calls us the bride of Christ. God doesn't forsake us for our many sins. Just like Gomer, we as followers of Christ struggle to follow after other things. We are, as the book of James calls it, we are continuously committing spiritual adultery. Yes, just like Hosea, God continues to pursue his wife. Just like Gomer being purchased back from the slave market by Hosea. If you are a follower of Jesus, your sins have been paid for as well. The word redemption actually means to purchase back from a slave market. That's what Jesus did if you're a believer today. Through his blood, he's paid the price to purchase you back from the slave market of sin. In doing this, God forgives your sin and meets you with mercy and love and compassion. If you're not a follower of Jesus, know that jesus died for sinners that if you place your faith in his payment for your sin god will by the power of his spirit bring you from spiritual death to spiritual life and join you to christ his righteousness will become your righteousness and you will be saved but again if you are a child of god i want you to hear this again god will never forsake you god will never turn you away or say you are not my child He says, I've been here the whole time, and I want to return your spiritual vineyards. I'm here to transform your valley of trouble into a gateway of hope. God says, essentially, I'm not going to grant your every desire, but if you look to him, you'll find a joy, you'll find a satisfaction that is better than anything you'll find in the idols that you are chasing. God says to us who are his spiritually adulterous bride— My love and my mercy are more powerful than your sin. God's justice has been met in the person of Jesus. Jesus has truly paid it all and satisfied God's wrath against our sin. Uh, One of my favorite hymns growing up is Grace Greater Than Our Sin. I just want to read the lyrics to you. I know you guys sing a lot of hymns here. And I know most of you are like, yes, I know this song already, but I'm going to read them. I just want you to meditate on them as I sing it. No, I'm not going to sing it as I read it, <laughs> okay. Um, it says, Marvelous grace of our loving Lord, grace that exceeds our sin and our guilt. Yonder on Calvary's mount outpoured, there where the blood of the Lamb was spilt. Dark is the stain that we cannot hide. What can avail to wash it away? Look, there is flowing a crimson tide, whiter than snow you may be today. Marvelous, infinite, matchless grace freely bestowed on all who believe. You that are longing to see his face, will you this moment his grace receive? Grace, grace, God's grace, grace that will pardon and cleanse within. Grace, grace, God's grace, grace that is greater than all our sin. Many of us who have sung that song, we sing it. Do we truly believe that God's grace is greater than all of our sin? When we wallow in shame and guilt, we often forsake the very truth of that statement. I want to encourage you to realize that it's paid in full. There's no more sin that you have to pay for. There's no guilt that you have to bear. Look to Jesus. Look to him and understand that grace is greater than all of our sin. All right, so this is, I think, the perfect segue into our next answer found in Psalm 121. Where does my help come from? where do I put my confidence in? Put your confidence in God who preserves you. Put your confidence in God who preserves you. The very one who pursues me, the very one who never slumbers nor sleeps, the very one who holds me in the power of his mighty hand, even when I don't recognize his presence, he's the one who preserves and keeps me. When it says the Lord is your keeper, It's the idea that God will preserve you, that he will protect you. If you've ever been boating on or or to like a water park on a hot summer day, you'll understand this next point of the text well. When it says that the Lord is our shade, because remember they didn't have SPF 50 back then, right? Uh, Man, if you're in the sun for any prolonged period of time with no shade, you know you're going to get burned. Look at verse 5. It says, The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand, and in verse six, the sun shall not strike you by day, nor the moon by night. I don't know about you, but what about that last phrase? Why is he worried about the moon striking him by night? Is he afraid of moonburn? Like, what is he getting at? Some people think that the psalmist is referring to the superstitious ideas of surrounding nations about the dangers of the moon. But I think it's way more likely that the writer is contrasting day and night, sun and moon, so that we see that God keeps us, God preserves us, God protects us from the potential harms both day and night. I think the evidence for this is how he builds on that idea in verse 7. Look at it. God literally protects us from all evil, and he protects your very life. Even in death, he protects and keeps our very souls, both now and through all eternity. Uh, The writer of the psalm is saying, while I'm singing and going into the city of God, while I'm going into Jerusalem and while I'm leaving Jerusalem, God is with me. He will protect me. He will bring me to the city. He will allow me to leave and he will bring me safely again. Not just today, but every day forevermore until I see the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride for her husband. Look at verse 7. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out, and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. This this verse echoes kind of a New Testament passage about our union with Christ through faith in him, as we see in Romans chapter 8. The chapter starts out with this beautiful promise to those who are followers of Jesus that there is now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Later in the chapter, we see that because of the union that we have with Christ, that there's the the fact that there's no condemnation and that Christ bore our condemnation, that Paul considers the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. So because of my union with Christ, my valley of troubles are transformed truly into a gateway of hope, looking back to that Hosea passage. And that hope is that creation itself awaits the day when Christ reconciles heaven and earth, when the curse is taken away and sin is no more. But not only creation, but we also long for that day when our adoptions as sons and daughters of God becomes a reality, And we stand in the presence of the Father. And the chapter, Romans 8, ends with one of the most encouraging passages in all the Bible. In all our sufferings, and all our trials, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. My hope for all of you this morning that whether or not you came into this building cheerful or full of joy, or if you found yourself struggling to find any joy at all, my prayer for you is just like this psalm, was that you'd be encouraged and find your help, find your confidence in the person of God, not anything else. So when the struggles of life come, and God does feel distant. And you begin to ask yourself the questions, where am I supposed to find my help? Where am I supposed to put my confidence that you wouldn't look for help in the wrong places, that you wouldn't place your confidence in wrong people, in wrong things? I think this psalm is such an encouragement to us, no matter where we are, no matter our, our circumstances, no matter our surroundings, to keep our eyes off of the physical world that we naturally run to, but instead to lift our eyes higher than the hills, to find our help in the creator of heaven and earth, and ultimately to rest in Christ, who's came and took our condemnation on himself, who's taken our sin, who's died our death, so that in his resurrection we may have his life if we place our faith in him. And my last word to you today, Christian, rest in Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your goodness. Thank you for your Son. Holy Spirit, today, would you work in hearts and lives? Even right now, if there is someone here that doesn't know Jesus as their personal Lord and Savior, would you make Christ so compelling to their heart and life right now that they could do none other but to turn to him in faith? Father, would you help us as Christians to find our help, to find our confidence in you. Help us to be bold in this world. Help us to to make much of Christ. Help us as we worship you today to not end our worship here in this building, but to, to praise you throughout the rest of this day and into this week, that we would be people of the kingdom, that we would show love and grace and mercy proclaiming the gospel as we go. Father, thank you again for your goodness and your grace in our lives, and may we be a tremendous example of it. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.